Episode 112, Business Coach Brian Buck. I was at a workplace and it turned toxic. And the mistake that I made was I waited too long to do anything about it. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and more, go to markraben.com slash mistake 112. As always, thanks for listening. I'm joined today by Brian Buck. He is a friend of mine. We cross paths professionally. What was it, Brian? At least 10, 12? I think a dozen years. years Yeah. Yeah. About 2008. Yeah. So before I tell the audience a little more about Brian, first off, um, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here, Mark. Thank you for the opportunity. So Brian is, uh, among other things, he's a transformational coach for small and medium-sized businesses. Um, I thought this is an interesting um, phrase you use on your LinkedIn page, Brian, uh, describes himself as a success curator. Tell us, uh, I'm curious, what what that phrase means to you. Yeah, I had this uh, eureka moment a few years ago in my life. I love curating. And what curating actually translates in Latin is to care for. And what curating is, I like to go deep in things, find all sorts of things. And then I like to bring back, here's like the few nuggets that really rise above that's going to help people. So I curate in the well in the way of wanting to help people. And I've been such a fan in the personal in the personal improvement world for many years, even before we met. And so I kind of picked up all of these little things, tips and tricks. And now I kind of bring it together and use it to be able to help people uh, achieve things that they never thought were possible. Wow. Well, that's a great goal. And it, it, I know it feels good to uh, to help people in that way. Um, so we'll talk more about the work Brian does um, as, uh, as a coach. But I also want to mention that Brian has a YouTube show slash podcast, or is it is it the other way around? I just call it a show and they can either see us or listen to us. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a show called People, Purpose and Profits Business Coaching. Um, I've been on there with uh, their, Brian's uh, co-host, um, Catalina Park. And um, so it was really good to be on on your show. And I'm glad we're going to have a conversation here as well. Yeah, it's fun being interviewed by you this time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which hat do I have on? I, right, right. You were this time. <laughs> um, I, I sometimes in the same day, have, yeah. uh, both, <laughs> both roles. But um, you can learn more about Brian and his work at his website, brianbuck.org. Um, so, Brian, I'm sure you've got a good story for us here. What would you say is your favorite mistake? Yeah, my favorite mistake was actually probably one of the darkest moments of my life. And my mistake was when I was at a workplace and it turned toxic. And the mistake that I made was I waited too long to do anything about it. And a little bit of a story. So 
I still to this day do not know what the tipping point, but it was literally a night and day thing where had a VP completely deny and do opposite of everything that this person has ever said in, in front of me before. So that was the tipping point of when it got unbearably bad, you mean? No, that's when it started. Oh. Okay. I like like things are normal. I worked at this place for a long time. I loved the work that I that I was doing. And then all of a sudden, this VP changed. And then when the VP changed, did some high pressure to make our director retire early, and then took a peer of mine and made them an interim director. And during that time, I had this interim director and this VP. They started really undermining absolutely everything. And one of the ways that I describe it is it's been, it was like a death by a thousand paper cuts. It was passive aggressive. It was little things. And this was my mistake as part of it is I kept going, I'm an adult. This is a little thing. I'm not going to respond to this. I'm big. I can handle this. But then it kept going. And I would have other people in the organization come up to me and say, what's the matter? What's going on with you? I've been hearing from this interim director that you're failing. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I I don't know where this is. Like the fact that I had other people coming to me to kind of talk about these underhanded things. Right, because that, that, that conversation said, hadn't come directly to you. Right, right. From the interim, right. Right, and then the VP would bring us into a room and we were going to kind of reorg after the director left. And my position was always on the parking lot. And... I remember this VP saying, well, this is a safe place to talk. And all I could think of was not for anybody in this room (laughs) besides you. And, you know, to me, there was a huge lesson in as a leader and as someone who coaches leaders, just because you say it's a safe place doesn't mean people actually feel safe. And and anyways, it continued. and, And the interim director would start. I started to see a pattern and they would be really trying to destroy the reputation of anyone who disagreed with them or who crossed their path. And um, it got to the point where I'm someone as as being a success minded person, I have trained myself to always look or choose perceptions that serve me. But I found in this toxic workplace, I couldn't do that. And my wife at one point said, Brian, you've lost your spark. Mm. Which just, She could tell. Yeah. Right. She could tell who I was was gone. Everything that I loved was gone. And so then I had to really figure out what to do. And I started to realize everything that I valued and the way that I interpreted the organization's values were not alive. And I started to hate where I work. And I, I, you know, for someone who teaches engagement, I've never experienced what it was like to be actively disengaged before that experience. So, and it just emotionally ate me up so badly. And it changed 
so much. And I eventually was luckily recruited to another place, which I, and by then we got another VP who made a good offer to be able to stay and correct things. But by then I wanted nothing to do with the organization. I lost trust in the organization that would allow something like this to happen. There's a guy out of Portland, name is Galen Emanuel, who saved my life. He did a LinkedIn post that said, great employees fire shitty bosses. And that was the first time I realized I could actually do something. I had power when I felt powerless. And um, the reason why I call it my favorite mistake because I learned so many lessons. I reached what I call as a never again moment in my life or for anyone else to never be there again. And so I really learned one is how emotional conflict can be. And we all know once we get that amygdala, I know we pronounce it right, but you know, once our the amygdala, right? Once that triggers, you're not thinking clearly. Wait, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Brian. I, I, Brian's a friend, so I'm going to point out. No, ami- yeah. amygdala. Amygdala. <laughs> Thank you. Perfect. Yeah, sorry. That's it. You, you made a mistake on a podcast about mistakes. I don't mean to beat you up for it. No, it's, it's all good. <laughs> the reptile <laughs> brain kicked in. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> yes. And, and then the other thing that I learned is, you know, the world that I'm in, has been about what's the root cause. I'm always wanting to understand why. And I'd like, why was this person treating people so poorly from an objectable state? And that's when I really realized that hurting people are hurt others. And, you know, this person was going through a divorce at the time. This person um, often couldn't influence. They would have ideas that no one could ever grasp on to say, hey, let's give that a try. That makes sense. And so you start to see, here's someone who's hurt, who now has power that's kind of overcompensating uh, to make up for that. And and so it it helped me have a lot more empathy for leaders. because it's very easy because I remember reading Bob Sutton's No Asshole Policy, thinking, but they aren't clearly being an asshole. If it were an asshole, it would be really easy to clear it up. But the passive aggressive and recognizing that they weren't necessarily doing it on purpose, but they were just reacting, uh, gave me so much empathy and in, in helping understand that. It also helped me to speak up early. I had a situation in, in the next role that I had where things are starting to be, what's this about? And I was able to speak up clearly about what I wanted be- besides just letting it ride, just going, I can handle it. I, I And not allowing these negative things to stack, but address them early, which, of course, the world of improvement, you want to deal with things when they're small. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so earlier when you said, you know, the mistake was waiting too long to do anything about it, Um quote unquote, doing anything about it doesn't just mean leaving the organization. It includes things like speaking up, trying to raise the issue, saying, here's what I want or need in a situation. Right. Right. And and I did do that before I decided to go. I made sure I had an option (laughs) to get out if it didn't go the way that I wanted. But it, it really came down to when I had that crucial conversation when they agreed, I didn't believe them. <laughs> so uh, at least I felt like I did the right thing before before piecing out. 
Yeah. How long, what was the timeline from that moment when you realized, oh gosh, things are now changing to the point when you left? Was that a year? Was it less? It was probably about nine months. Yeah. Nine, nine to 10 months. That felt like five years. (laughs) The longest nine months of my life. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. I mean, sometimes things like this happen when there's a change in leadership, but this is a different change. The leader, the same person was behaving differently. Right. And, and so I that was still, confusing. Right. And especially, you know, from someone with like a scientific mindset to not be able to find any logic behind it. You know, to this day, I don't understand why. <laughs> and I have to find my own closure with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I think a lot of situations uh, where a leader is behaving a certain way, whether their behavior has changed or not, some of it, they, they, they may be responding to how their immediate boss using the word, I don't like right. the word boss, but I guess yeah. it, it fits in some, their immediate, you know, the, the leadership above them. Yeah. Maybe conditioning them or stuff maybe fl- rolling downhill as they say. But no, I was just going back when um, you said that, that leader told you this is a safe place to talk. Like, I don't know if this is wisdom or cynicism. Like I get suspicious at a statement like that. <laughs> Sure. Right. Like you could be demonstrating that. Like, why are you having to go out of your way? Like, I think a similar statement is, yeah, my door is always open. Like, well, is it? Right. If it was, <laughs> and I felt welcome, I I would know this. The, the, the other one, I, I learned this earlier in my career. If somebody ever even thinks to say in the context of the organization, I'm not a political person, mm. look out. Because that yeah. is the person who is political, right? Somebody right. who's truly not into organizational politics doesn't even think to bring <laughs> it up, right? Right. But somebody that, who's trying to sort of, you know, I don't know, lurk in the shadows or be a ninja <laughs> about stuff, they're going to try to convince you that they're not yeah. into playing politics at work. <laughs> that reminds me of a Dimitri Martin joke who says, whenever someone starts a sentence with, I'm a taxpayer, they're going to be a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so a quick detour here. Yeah, there's these different there are these different phrases like, uh, "Hey Brian, let me be honest with you for a minute." Right. <laughs> What's your reaction to that? Like, what? yeah, I thought you were being honest with me, man. Come on. Right. Yeah. Well, what about the rest of the hour? Are you gonna still be honest then? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Yeah, just for a minute, like mm, honesty zone, and then right turn that off. Well, and that um, was another huge learning that I had too is is there was no executive visibility of what was happening. And and that was kind of my, once I left and was able to kind of piece things together, you know, I got to a point where I blamed the organization for allowing it to happen, but then there was no visibility, you know? And, and I think so many people believe this is something that happens elsewhere. It can't be here, but if they saw it, I think they would have reacted. And it's tough, right? I mean, if you had some opportunity or mechanism, like, you know, a quote unquote skip level meeting, if that was a regular thing mm-hmm. or like, you know, try, somehow going above your boss's head is risky. Right. 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 Yeah. And, and you, you know, two levels already were a problem. Like you were saying, if it was coming from above. Is it going to just be even worse? You know, but I, I there is a point like when I had that crucial conversation and I realized I couldn't trust that interim director 
at least I made them play their hands so I can make an informed decision. So I think there is a piece on that. And like one of the things that I became obsessed with it, learning for myself and practicing and helping other teams is bringing up elephants in the room in a um, respectful way, because then you can get rid of all assumptions and you know this is their choice and they're doing it consciously. Hmm. Um, do you have, I mean, do you have an example of that or even if it's just kind of a scenario? Yeah. Well, um, when I was at another organization, when I really started to practice this, um, you know, one of my personal beliefs about leadership is a leader will set outcomes and then the team creates the process to get the outcome. That's a bit where um, this works. So I had a leadership team who said, this is your process and your outcome. The only, in, the only feedback we want from you is how well this process is working for you. And I was able to say, well, here's an assumption that I have about leadership. And this is why this feels different than that. Can you help me understand your assumption? And it was able to make the leaders go, that wasn't our intent. And I was able to have other people come up to me going, I'm so glad you said something. Like I find when you bring up the elephant in the room, people are thankful, especially when you don't do it in a jerk way. And it was able to create a good conversation. But you know, if this person came back and said, no, you just do what I say, process and outcome, I might choose whether or not that's a place or someone I'd want to work with. Yeah. Now, I'm curious that phrase when you talk about doing this in a non-jerk way. At one point, um, when, when I was um, relatively new to working in healthcare, like there was this advice that was passed along. If you need to question someone, it's such hierarchy in healthcare. If you need to question a surgeon or somebody higher up in the hierarchy, um, one way of doing that is to use a phrase you did. Help <laughs> me understand. <laughs> Help me understand why we're doing it this way. Now, tone of voice, probably like anything can be helpful or not. It's like the difference in, you know, uh, you don't want to come across like, uh, well, bless your heart as, uh, <laughs> right. as they say in the South, like yeah. that sounds nice. Help me understand could sound nice or it could sound jerky, I guess. Mm -hmm. But is that, is that a phrase you ran across at all? The help me understand. Help me understand. Yeah. I probably picked up that on my coaching world, but specifically in the world of bringing out elephants in the room, it is about recognizing that we might be approaching something with different assumptions. And so it is really about, I assume this, what do you assume? Oh, that's different. What do we want to do with that? You know, so I think that that is the main, the main point of it, whether or not you couch it with a help me understand, or uh, that's probably just my ability to connect easier and not be, uh, yeah, like I said, it's all about being constructive. And, and collaborative, yeah. And, and being constructive in what? I'm sorry. And collaborative. Like, this isn't uh, me versus you. I'm right, you're wrong. Like, hey, I've got this assumption. you got this assumption. What does this mean? If they're different, what do we want to do going forward? Yeah. And being constructive, I, yeah, that seems to be key. Help me understand why you're being a jerk right now. That's not <laughs> right. really going to lead to anything helpful. Right, right. Well, and that's the other key thing that I learned is what's called as nonviolent communication. And that is recognizing 
Um, this is what I observed without judgment. This is what I'm feeling, communicating, understanding what I need, and then making a request. So often people harbor, and this is what I did in the, the uh, toxic workplace until I figured this out, was I was just eating it up. I wasn't really clear what I was feeling. I wasn't clear what I needed, nor was I asking for what I needed. You know, and if you have a relationship and someone says, here's what I need and here's my request, many people are more open to doing that if they genuinely care. If they don't care, that's also data for you as well. And then you aren't pointing fingers or blaming, but now you see there's a difference now, what do I want to do with that? And, and that whole approach that you described there, that applies in workplace relationships or personal relationships, right? Yep, absolutely. And it's something that is, I, what I like about it is there's a process to it. So when you are in the emotion, you can kind of ride that and, and make it work. Versus I'm feeling this and now I'm just reacting. Because when you react, you might lose your spark like I did because <laughs> you aren't doing it consciously. And this at least, you know, what's it, what I love too, that kind of brings that back into that success mindset that I've spent so much learning on. And, you know, it brings back that element of choosing w how I want to go forward. Yeah. So there's one other phrase you mentioned, Brian. Um, it, it matches up with uh, the title of a book um, that I have heard about. It's been recommended to me so many times. I need to actually go read the book, a book called Crucial Conversations. So I don't know. where Are you influenced by that book or are we just happening to, to use the phrase? Um, I used the phrase, and that was actually one of the other powerful lessons that I've learned, was um, my interpretation of that book is it's awesome, but it's a big deal. There's like a, we're going to have this conversation. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And that doesn't work when someone just said something horrible in a meeting and you're walking out of the meeting. And so what I've learned was how to have these kinds of conversations quickly and within real time, in a way that doesn't bring up the fight or flight, that crucial conversations could actually do. And that, to me, has really been a game changer. It helped me have that conversation before I left in a way that helped us get there. And then I have taken it in the other places that I've worked and the clients that have tried it have been very successful using it because you get to do it in real time. And you talk about fight or flight instinct, it comes back to the amygdala again, that part right. of our brain that goes, um, you know, it's a, it's a kind of autonomous reaction. And, you know, I've heard this related to continuous improvement. Um, just as a quick aside, I've interviewed a psychologist from UCLA named uh, Bob Moore, who talks about the idea of like, even when change is positive, if the change is too big, like logically, we'd say logically, this change is positive. But that reptile brain kicks in. The amygdala kicks in. We have that flight, fight or flight instinct. We have this physiological reaction. And that shuts down the higher order thought process. And so that re that's required for creativity or problem solving, anything that, other than just escaping the moment safely. And, and so Professor Moore, um, you know, his key is like the only thing you, you can't 
tell someone don't be human, don't be scared. Like I've found a lot of yeah. change management sort of lectures people like, oh, just don't be scared. Like, right. oh, well, good, you know, good <laughs> luck with that. Yeah. You know, um, Professor Moore says what you can do is make the change small mm-hmm. and people can become more comfortable with change. And, and that, that's part of our shared professional experience of you know, helping people start small with improvement in different types of workplaces. Yeah. And that's one of the key things that I've learned in my um, coaching journey. And I've, I've always heard this before, but uh, it's a Tony Robbins quote, but it's true is it's 80% psychology, 20% strategy. And I always say, I can give a smoker a pamphlet on exactly how to quit smoking. It's not the how to, but stopping them. So it's all of this other stuff that helps people actually get what they really desire. Whether you make it small or you offset, change your environment, all of those things can help greatly help. Yeah, you've you've got to talk about uh, motivations. I mean, there's a an approach that I uh, was exposed to years ago. I've become at least you know trying to be a student of it. An approach called motivational interviewing. Have you run mm. across this, Brian? I have. Uh, some of the people that uh, were in our clinical world used to use it. Mm-hmm. So the one example I can think of, you know, real quick scenario. Let's say. Um, dental patient, you get told, as I get told, I go in for cleanings three times a year because mm. uh, that just works better for me instead mm. of the standard of twice a year. Mm. And I get told, you need to floss more. Mm. And that statement, while true, is something that's already in my head. This knowledge is there, but I've, I mean, I've gotten better, but I'm not taking action mm-hmm. on it. There's this defensiveness. <clears throat> it's not necessarily fight or flight. It's just equal and opposite reaction. So the motivational interviewing approach in dentistry would start off more along the lines of, hey, Mark, can we have a conversation about the health of your gums? Okay. (laughs) Cleaning was kind of painful. So let's talk about this. And then they might say, Mark, tell me what you know about flossing. Then I'm articulating. I need to floss every time I brush. What are some reasons why that would be important to you? And and drawing out yeah. those motivations is really powerful instead of trying to dictate not just what you should do, but even mm-hmm. dictating why you should do it. There's magic in that, too. Uh, Chip and Dan Heath in their book, Switch, one of my favorite quotes in there, and I've used this a lot, is people support what they create. So if you are the one who creates the action you're going to take, you are far more likely to do it than anybody saying you should. Because you go, well, all right, I know I should, but, and then, yeah. But if you created it, your chances of of success are so much higher. Yeah. Um, Random book recommendation. Um, This one was written by not the Heath brothers, Mm. but um, one of them. Um, I'm going to Google it real quick. The book, anyway, that came out last year was called Upstream. Mm. And I think you would really like it. It's it's by Dan Heath. Okay. Um, it's talking about so the the subtitle is um, the quest to solve problems before they happen. And the fact mm. that this book came out like a month before pandemic was on everybody's radar, <laughs> it was very prescient. Yeah. And in terms of how can we be proactive and anticipate things that could go wrong? And put prevention in place, like literally upstream, mm-hmm. instead of just getting better at reacting. So knowing the work that that, that you do, Brian, and again, our uh, professional um, circles, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a book you would really like. It's on my, I'm going to add it right after we talk. 
All right. Um, so before we wrap up, and again, our guest has been uh, Brian Buck. You can learn more about his work and his uh, podcast slash YouTube show at brianbuck.org. Um, in, in, in a nutshell, um, you know, what, what's your passion around um, helping small and medium sized businesses? How, how are some of the ways you go about that? Yeah. So I come from the corporate world. So I'm used to large organizations and helping them make improvements in not only their leadership, but also in their processes and systems. But what I find in the large organization, it's slow. And so working with small to medium-sized businesses is just more fun for me because I get to work with smaller teams and you can actually make great changes that affect many people really quickly. And uh, I also have a huge passion for decreasing poverty in the world. And I know by helping businesses do super well and grow in their local areas, that's one way that I can positively impact that. But yeah, I help not only um, help them from the leadership side, but also how do you really grow your business and how do you increase your sales, kind of help them all the way through that kind of soup to nuts and and just help them take to the next level. Because one of my other passions is by getting a right culture when you're a small to medium-sized business, when you scale to be big, you're not going to have someone who needs to come and undo any of that kind of toxic stuff later because there's passion and strength when the founder principles uh, keep and grow and scale. Yeah, yeah that's great. This, it comes back again, this book, Upstream, <laughs> Solving Problems yeah. Before They Happen, being upstream um, about designing a culture. That's that's a really important thing you bring up there, Brian. Well, I didn't know the book, but yeah, that sounds like a perfect perfect. Perfect connection there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I recommend it for uh, the listeners and viewers um, as well. So um, again, Brian Buck has been our guest. I encourage you to go check out his show, People, Purpose, and Profits, Business Coaching. I'll put a link to the episode where Brian and Kat interviewed me. I'll put a link to that in the show notes if people want to listen or watch um, or or check that out. Um, So Brian, hey, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I'm glad we could not only catch up, but I'm glad we could hit record and uh, and do an episode here today. Thanks a lot. Great. Appreciate the opportunity, Mark. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Brian Buck for being our guest today. For links, show notes, and more info about him and his work, you can go to markraven.com slash mistake 112. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.